0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 31 here in just a moment, Mark chapter 3, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'd like a hard copy to look down at throughout this uh, sermon, you can slip up your hand, we've got extras in the back, one of our members will be glad to, to bring you a copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 3, verse 31. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you uh, a little bit about where we've been and a little bit about one of the things that Mark does in this gospel. The gospel of Mark um, is, is written thematically, Mark structures the story of Jesus. Uh, Not necessarily around chronological events, but rather he structures it around thematic events to make theological points about who Jesus is. That is, he is the divine son of God. And one of the things that Mark uses, which is so interesting, he uses this technique called uh, sandwiching, okay, where he puts one story that's similar on the front end, and another story that's similar on the back end, and then one story in the middle that's a little unique, but all three of them sandwiched together make it good, right? Piece of bread by itself, not so great. Piece of bread by itself, not so great. Slap some peanut butter and jelly in the middle, you've got like, something going on, right? That's what the Gospel of Mark does. He, he sandwiches these, these truths to fill out the truth of what he's trying to get across. And we saw that really the entire gospel of Mark is one big sandwich. At the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus is baptized, it's, a very, it's the, the, you know, the, the, the beginning of his, the inauguration of his public ministry. He's baptized, and the scripture says that the heavens are torn open. Schizo is the, the Greek word there. The heavens are torn open, and then God the Father declares, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, fast forward to the very end of the book, and it's the last moment of Jesus' sort of public ministry before he's, his death, and he's on the cross, and he breathes his last, and it's the only other time that the word schizo shows up, and it says, the veil in the temple schizoed, it tore from top to bottom, and a Roman centurion declares, surely this was the Son of God. So you've got a tearing, a tearing, a declaration of the Son of God, a declaration of the Son of God, and everything in the middle screams this is the son of God everything Jesus did everything Jesus taught so so even the whole book is sort of sandwiched together and today in Mark chapter 3 we have a similar but smaller sandwiching of material in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3 Jesus's family is seeking him out to seize him because they think he's out of his mind in verses 22 through 30 Jesus's opponents accuse him of being demonic, and now in verse thirty-one that we're about to read in just a moment, some of Jesus's family are again seeking him. So, so here's the the sandwich structure here: Jesus, Jesus's blood relatives seek him out. Jesus's biggest enemies accuse him, and then Jesus's blood relatives seek him out again. And I think the big point of putting these stories together really comes to a head in this paragraph beginning in verse 31 so let me read for us 31 through 35 and then we're gonna we're gonna pause and pray for god to grant us understanding and his mother being jesus and jesus mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. God, we, we we pray the words of the song that we just sang. Speak, oh Lord. Help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us, Lord. Truths unchanged since the dawn of time. That echo down into eternity, including this very moment, God, I pray that God, I, I am just overwhelmed by the task of preaching your word this morning. In this room, there are countless needs. Countless sources of discouragement. Countless sins and temptations waging war against your people. Satan himself seeking to blind the minds of the unbeliever. But God, you and your word are powerful to save. And powerful to sanctify, and you can use. Even me. To just say true things. And then use your spirit to draw people into the family of God. And so, Father, I pray that we would listen with anticipation that God could work many miracles in this place through the preached word. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. The scene changes from last week. Last week, Jesus is being accused by the scribes and the Pharisees of having a demon. They can't argue with the miracles that he's doing. They can't argue with the insane stuff, the the, the lame people walking, the blind people seeing, the things that Jesus is doing. And so they've got to come up with another way to debunk who Jesus is claiming to be. And so they claim that he's doing all these these things by the power of Satan. Jesus responds to them, as we saw last week, saying, no way I came to bind up Satan and to plunder him. I am the one who came to conquer. I didn't come to join the darkness. I came to overcome the darkness. And uh, Jesus responds and then the scene just changes from this moment of accusation. And now we find Jesus sitting in a house with a crowd of people. And and this particular crowd seems to be portrayed in a positive light. They're not clamoring for miracles. Rather they're seated around Jesus. They seem to be listening to his teaching. But nonetheless it's a large group of people packed into a house as we've seen over and over again. And Jesus' own mother and his brothers are standing outside the crowded house, crowded out, so that they can't seem to squeeze through to get into Jesus. So instead of squeezing through, they try to send a message through the crowd that they are outside and they're trying to talk to Jesus. So I imagine it playing out, you know, crowded house, Family on the outside of the house, I, I imagine it playing out kind of like that phone game where you're like passing a message and it's getting into Jesus or they're crying out saying, hey, Jesus, we're outside. Whatever the case may be, the message gets from outside the house to inside the house that, hey, Jesus, your family is here. Verse 32, the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, this just seems like a normal moment, right? Jesus is teaching. It's crowded. Hey, your family's outside. And Jesus could have, of course, gotten up, urged everyone to make way for his family to come inside. Don't let them be outside. Like, like, tell them to come in. He could have pushed his way through the crowd to get outside to his family. He could have sent a message back saying, hey, just tell them I'll meet them by the lake this evening at six o'clock or or maybe come back later when I'm not so busy. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Rather, he sees the moment as a teaching opportunity for everyone present in the house. As Jesus often does, he uses situations and circumstances, things that you don't think are really important, but throughout his ministry, he uses fig trees, or fishing, or farming, or bread, or the work of shepherding, and he draws real theological bombshells from just normal things happening in life. So Jesus responds to the request, saying, Hey, your family's outside. They're seeking you. Jesus responds to the request... With a rhetorical question designed to shock the people in the room into thinking more deeply about a theological point. Verse thirty-three, and he answered them, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" Now I can imagine the puzzled looks on the people's faces as Jesus asks the question. Uh, Jesus, I mean, your your mama's Mary. Um, Your your brothers, James, you need some water, Jesus. I mean, are are you I mean, are you are you okay? Yeah, we we know who your mothers and your your mother and your brothers are. What do you mean? Who are my mother and my brothers? And Jesus continues, verse 34. Looking about at those who sat around him, he said. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't think the point of the story is that Jesus was rejecting his blood family. Rather, I think the point of the story is that Jesus is signaling to everyone in the room that what he came to do was to start a new kind of family. If you're, if you're a note taker, write this down. Truth number one, Jesus came to start a new kind of family. Early in, earlier in this chapter, we saw Jesus intentionally take his followers up on the mountain and then select twelve apostles. A very intentional move on his part. And We talked about how the people of God in the Old Testament, that they were formed out of Twelve grandsons, great-grandsons of Abraham who became the twelve tribes of Israel. They were the old covenant people of God. And Jesus selecting twelve apostles was a signal to the watching world. I'm here to build a new covenant kind of people. And here with Jesus' words, he signals to everyone that he has come to start a new kind of family unit. A family that will not be built on physical bloodline. This family will not have in common one ethnicity, one culture, one country. But this family will have in common one relationship to Jesus and to his heavenly father. In this sandwiching of three stories, the interesting thing that is being woven together is that it's not Jesus's blood relatives that are identified as Jesus's family. It's not the Pharisees and the scribes who are supposed to be experts in religion who are identified as Jesus's family. No, it's neither blood relatives nor his greatest enemies. Jesus simplifies it all in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother now now i know that the passage for this morning is not as complicated as some of the texts that we've worked through as of late we're not wrestling through the sabbath we're not wrestling through blasphemy of the holy spirit or things of that nature but sometimes it's it's the sentences in the bible which seem so simple that are the most profound and the most difficult for us to appreciate Jesus is certainly signaling to his reader, readers here that his ministry will be one through which a new family-like community is formed. I mean, he's, he's come to build his church, which will function like a spiritual family. But the implications for this are far beyond what we often give them there do. So let's just take a moment and I want us to consider a few of the phrases here. Jesus looks around the room and he says, "Here are my mother and my brothers." In other words, here's my family in the truest sense of the word and and now that's a nice gesture, a kind of odd but nice gesture if Jesus is just a normal guy. I mean, we say stuff like that. Oh, yeah, you know, he's he's, he's my brother. He's my family, you know. It, it's an interesting gesture if Jesus is just a normal guy. But we've seen According to the Gospel of Mark thus far, that Jesus isn't just another dude. Who is Jesus according to the Gospel of Mark? When we use language of brothers and mothers and sisters, who what is Jesus' most fundamental identity? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is baptized. A voice from heaven comes, You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. In the truest and most profound sense of the word, Jesus is the Son of God the Father, and according to the teaching of the Bible, has always been. God has always existed. As Father, Son, and Spirit. The fullness of God is Trinity. Three divine persons in relationship with Himself. One big being who is God. The very nature of God is beyond our comprehension. He is eternal, uncreated, all-sustaining, all-knowing. He's omnipresent. And in of Himself, He is relationship with Himself that has continued back through eternity past. When God created According to John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, he created through the Son. When God created, he created human beings to reflect his image and to enjoy this relationship with the fullness of God that has happened from eternity past. They didn't do so well at that. They sinned against the God who desired relationship with him and deserved his wrath. But when Jesus was born, God the Son Took on human flesh, became a man, lived as a man, and perfectly reflected the image that humanity was supposed to reflect. And perfectly lived a life in a way that pleased the Father. So, so, so think about all of this theology we have about who Jesus is. Jesus' aim, Jesus came in human flesh to do what humanity couldn't do to take the punishment of humanity on himself so that humans could again be blessed with the status sons and daughters of God who don't have to face the wrath of God but again come into a place where they get to experience the blessings of God for eternity this is what Jesus came to do according to the scriptures to make your adoption possible To pay the price for the penalty of your sins so you could become a part of the family. To represent you before the Father so you might enjoy all the benefits of being a son or a daughter. He came so that you might experience all the blessings of God that Jesus himself has been enjoying for eternity. I'm not just making all this stuff up. I want you to see it in the scriptures and we could bounce all over the place. But I just here's Jesus using familial language. These are my brothers and my sisters. But I want you to see Paul commenting on the depths of what that means for us. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse three. This is the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. (laughs) And it's Paul praising the Lord for what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to be in the family. So I just want to read this to you, and I want you to notice how many times Paul uses the word in Christ or in the beloved or in him. And I want you to notice how he talks about it, uh, your salvation as an adoption into a family where you get an inheritance and you get all the things that Jesus has right so just just listen to me and worship as you listen because this is supposed to be a sentence of praise blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. When Jesus said, "Here." are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. Here's my family. I don't think anyone in the room grasped the depths of that statement just yet. (laughs) I don't think they got just yet what they were being invited into, what inheritance they were being invited to enjoy for all of eternity. Paul says you got to pray to God that he would help you grasp the depths and heights of this inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, have the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what are the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We are Christians Welcomed into the family of God. We are adopted as children. At one point in our life, we had no inheritance at all but the wrath of God. Now we have the inheritance that only Christ deserves. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jesus came to start a new kind of family. With all of the family benefits you can imagine. But there's more to be learned from Jesus' statement here. I mean, I think there's a wealth of theology just behind the fact that he's come to start this new kind of family. But there's more to be learned with the statement. I think Jesus is also modeling for his followers the kind of perspective that the new family must embrace. Now, both first century Roman culture and Jewish culture were highly familial. They were highly communal. Their sense of identity came very much from which family they were a part of and how family life was going. Family was Family is important to 21st century Americans, but individualism has changed the fabric of even our thinking of our own blood family. So back then, there was a loyalty and identification with blood family that far surpasses anything that we experience in our culture today. Yet here's Jesus, who seems to break away from the cultural norms to say that he came to establish a new family and a new identity, which supersedes Even his blood family. Truth number two the new family shares a new primary identity. Jesus is constantly shocking his hearers by suggesting that loyalty to Jesus and his mission should now supersede even loyalty to one's own family. Look back at verse 33. He answered, "Who are my mother and brothers?" Who are they? And looking around, he, he who sat around him, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers." Jesus is not necessarily saying his family on the outside of the home, they're not true followers of Jesus, that they don't matter at all. Just you just, just reject them. We see other scriptures that, that encourage us to take care of our families, to honor our fathers, to treat our children well, all these types of things. But Jesus is saying that there's a new family structure which now takes priority priority even over your commitment to blood relatives. Now, I, I was standing up to preach this morning and I see visitors that are family members, right? And I'm like, great. I got moms and dads looking at me now going, you're telling them not to love me. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I am saying what Jesus is saying, that their love for Jesus should supersede their love for you. And their obedience to Jesus should supersede their obedience to you. And if you love Jesus, that's a, that should be a good thing. Because you can be wrong. <laughs> Jesus can't. This is something he implicitly says here, but this is something Jesus explicitly says later in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Peter has just said, uh, we've left everything to follow you. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, now we have to pause here and remind ourselves of the first century listeners of the Gospel of Mark. If you remember way back in the beginning, we talked about how this gospel was written to Roman Christians during a time of severe persecution. Okay? And when you remember that, because we forget it as we sort of like track along, but we remember original audience and then you read the same text through the lens of what the original audience was going through, it adds a deeper meaning to what you're reading. This book was written during a time that families were disowning their own brothers and sisters and sons and daughters because of their faith in Jesus. This book was written during a time of Christian persecution to some who had no doubt no doubt felt as if they lost their blood family the second they put faith in Jesus Christ. Yet here from the lips of Jesus himself, he's saying, you have a new family now. Coming to Jesus means now finding your identity in him more precious, more life-shaping than any other group, subgroup, culture, race, political party, interest, or family in this world. Jesus' people are your people now. (laughs) If you find yourself more outspoken, more loyal, more consumed, more passionate about identifying yourself with anything more than Jesus and being a part of the family of God, you just might be out of step with what the gospel is supposed to mean in your life. Because Jesus says things like Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus teaching that you you should hate your family and teach them with contempt? Absolutely not. But he does teach us to follow Jesus in every way, even if it costs us a relationship that we cherish. you're a Christian here today, you have more in common with other Christians in this room than your closest blood relative that doesn't know Christ. And this is because your primary sense of identity has shifted to revolve around Jesus and his mission more than any other structure in this world. The new family shares a new primary identity, but there's more to it than just Belonging to the family, there's more to it than just receiving the blessings of the family. We are invited to take part in the family business. In participation with brothers and sisters, we're invited to take part in the father's plan. Jesus gives one indicator in this passage for how you can tell whether someone is part of the family or whether someone is not part of the family. The, one of the things that blew my mind this week about studying this text was how Jesus just simplifies the situation in this paragraph. I would have felt the need to clarify. I would have felt the need to add a whole lot more theological statements to this. But Jesus just, just makes this bold punchy one-line sentence and maybe there was more teaching mark didn't include but mark said this is the important thing for you to take away from this situation mark chapter 3 verse 35 how do we know who's a part of the family of god verse 35 whoever does the will of god he's my brother and sister and mother truth number three and our final truth for this morning is this the new family is marked by obedience to the father the new family is marked by obedience to the Father. Now, you, you can tell that I am my dad's son by looking at me and spending a little bit of time with me. Uh, spend a little time, and you will see similar smiles, similar personalities, similar mannerisms, no matter how much I try not to, right? Right? I just, I, I, you can see it. I mean, if we're standing around joking, we're, I'm a dad now, we're telling the same dad's jokes. It's embarrassing, right? There's a similarity that you can witness in my external behavior. You can tell I'm my dad's son by old pictures. You can tell I'm my dad's son by birth certificate. You can tell that I'm my dad's son by my own admission. But how do you tell whether someone is a child of God? You can't necessarily tell just by looking at them. You can't necessarily tell if they tell you that they're a child of God. Most people would verbally say they're a part of the family of God. Nobody wants to say that they're the other option the Bible gives us, which is a child of Satan and a child of wrath. Nobody just says, yeah, I'm one of those, or few people do. Most people would give you verbal consent, but, but according to Jesus, you can tell whether someone's a part of the family of God by whether they or not they obey. Now, I, I know that that seems elementary to many of us, uh, but let's not take for granted here for just a moment the fact that one of our primary callings as a Christian is to show our love for God by obeying God. Like he says stuff, and then we do that stuff, <laughs> or we don't do that stuff, because. We believe him to be the authoritative king of the universe, and he knows better than us. We, we've been called to submit ourselves under the sovereign, wise rule of God as he's revealed himself to us through his word. Obedience is essential to the Christian life. Now, as soon as I start to say this, and this is why I'm amazed that Jesus just was just like, whoever does the will of God. Because, because there are ditches on both sides of the road when it comes to the conversation on obedience. Right On the one side, we must be careful never to communicate to someone that to become a Christian, to become a part of the family, to be adopted is is to somehow be obedient enough to where God finally says, yeah, like that one, invite him in. On this side of the road, there's the false belief that your salvation can somehow be earned by your obedience. We cannot earn anything from the God of the universe who just speaks worlds into existence. I'm not going to impress him very much by my occasional obedience. He gifts me salvation by his grace alone and the Bible is crystal-stinking clear. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, "By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing; it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast." And listen to me, any theology that teaches That salvation can be gained or lost by what you do or don't do is not the biblical doctrine of salvation. Any theology which says it's up to you to earn it is a false theology. This is why Jesus came. Because it was impossible for you to be perfectly obedient. Jesus came to be perfectly obedient on your behalf and take the punishment you deserve so we do not want to fall into the ditch on this side of the road i don't know why the left side of the road is this one we do not want to fall into the ditch on this side of the road which communicates salvation by obedience but there's another ditch on the other side of the road And on this side of the road, it's the faulty belief that salvation does not have to lead to obedience. Over on this side of the road, people say Jesus can be your Savior, but not really your Lord. You can believe in Jesus without really following Jesus. Or you can be a Christian, but simply reject the commands of God's word as unimportant. To that position, the Apostle Paul just loses his ever-loving mind in Romans 6. I mean, he's been going through the grace of Christ for for five chapters. In chapter 6, he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we? Who died to sin still live in it. In other words, something happens to us upon faith in Jesus so profound it's as if the old identity and old way of life dies. And a new identity and a new way of life gets reborn. And this new identity and way of life prioritizes obedience to the heavenly father who saved my sinful soul. It's just what we desire to do for our adopted, our our father who adopted us. It's just what we want to do as children of God. So Jesus, I, I thought about like putting a graphic with like a a street and ditches on each side and, and the thing in the middle because this is so important all the time in your Christian life you're wanting to fall off the side right you're wanting to fall off as if you could earn God's favor and you're wanting to fall off as if God's favor doesn't even matter to you and you can live however you want and the sweet spots right in the middle that you got so much favor of God that you want to obey this God who keeps giving you favor so stay on the road Jesus is not falling on either side of the ditch, and he's not afraid to say with confidence and clarity, for whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. You want to discern whether someone's truly part of the family, check their obedience. Do they care about obedience? Do they consider obedience to be a nice option some of the time? Is their life characterized by imperfect striving for obedience or is their their life characterized by a hardened indifference to their own disobedience? If your life is characterized by a hardened indifference to your own disobedience with no desire to repent, then I question your salvation because Jesus tells me to question it. Mark chapter 7, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes scattered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every tree, healthy tree, bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 1 John chapter 3, disciple of John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what is the will of God? Right. (laughs) Because you could be sitting here this whole time and sort of be tossed to and fro by thinking about, okay, what is the will of God? Many of us spend time seeking some secret will of God, like he's hidden some cosmic Easter egg hunt for us. And someday we'll find obedience if we just look in the right patch of grass. But but the most important aspects of obedience. Have nothing to do with some secret will of God. That he's sort of hiding from you. The most important aspects of obedience usually don't have much to do with whether you take this job or that or make this move or that or marry this girl or that girl. The most important aspects of obedience have everything to do with what God has clearly revealed already in his word. And he speaks clear and loud in his word about what we are to do and not to do. And so this is how I want us to like end the sermon. I I want you right now every person in the room, right now, there's, there will be a temptation to deflect this verse to someone else who you think needs it more. Right now, there's a tendency for many of you to hear the words, whoever does the will of God, and think, man, there's some people in here that probably don't do that thing. And you automatically assume that you've got it all together when it comes to obeying the will of God. But I want all of us to pause this morning and allow God to search our hearts. where are we knowingly or willfully choosing disobedience is there a particular sin that you need to repent of there this morning, is there a particular something that you keep entertaining in your life that you absolutely know is holding you back from faithfully serving the Lord, but you're stubbornly holding on to it and refusing to let it go? What darkness has God called you to run from? this morning? What light has God called you to walk in this morning? What hard conversation are you refusing to have? Has God called you to to give of your income, but you have not out of laziness or greed? Has God called you to break off an unhealthy relationship, to pursue deeper accountability, to join the church, to start making disciples, to commit to corporate prayer? Are you refusing to be baptized as a believing adult through Jesus, though he commanded it so clearly in his word? Are you still drinking, though you know the Bible says it can destroy you and your family? Are you harboring bitterness and unforgiveness So the Bible says forgive as Christ forgave? Listen, Jesus came to invite you into a whole new family with a brand new identity and a new resolve to obey the Father. And every sin I just alluded to is entirely forgiven in Christ. Entirely. Every hour of pornography watched is entirely forgiven in the blood of Christ. But let's be clear, Christ intended not only to forgive you of those sins, but to free you from those sins and grow in maturity as a child of God for the rest of your life. Let's be who Christ called us to be this morning by repenting and believing more and more with every passing day. So this is what I want us to do. I just, I, I just, I just want to go into a quiet time of reflection and prayer this morning um, where we just sort of ask God, show me, God, how I'm not doing the will of the Father and help me to have the strength to do it. I'm not even going to pray to close this thing out. I'm just going to read for you uh, the lyrics of uh, a song that that we're singing. Uh, And we'll have just a quiet time of prayer as the the band comes up and starts to play. And then we'll just sing the song as a prayer together as uh, as we search our hearts and ask God to search them. Here's what we'll sing together here in just a moment. Take my life and let it be consecrated to thee take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless grace take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love take my feet let them be swift and beautiful for thee Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Here I am, all of me, take my life, it's all for thee. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer, repenting and then thanking Christ that all is forgiven.